it seems that only yesterday we were welcoming in summer. Now it's coming to an end. No major bushfires for Victoria this year, but plenty of weather, particularly devastating winds. We can only hope that those who hold the reins of power come to their collective senses and work to stop the march of climate change before it's too late. But today for Tuesday Home Time, no week that was, with Kevin Healy, it's his yearly week away down the beach with friends, and they've been lucky this year they've had a good one. But there are also plenty more on the program. I said last week that Kathy Kelly would be talking about Afghanistan and her friends, the peace activists, whom she can no longer meet, but that's for this week. The first session for 2022 with Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network, and unfortunately plenty of fights on their hands. While the mass media is saturated with far-off Ukraine, the struggles of the people of West Papua hardly rate a mention, but there is plenty to expose. I'll be speaking once again with West Papua activist Ronnie Karini, who now lives in Australia. A racial discrimination complaint will proceed against the Australian government for its advocacy on behalf of Israel. Sydney law firm Birchgrove Legal is acting for Nasser Mashni in a Section 9 Racial Discrimination Act complaint against the Australian government. Nasser is Vice President of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, and presenter of 3CR's Palestine Remembered program. Nasser, this has been described as a highly unusual complaint to the Australian Human Rights Commission and will set a major precedent if successful. Why have you chosen this time to bring forward your complaint? It speaks to the fact that Australians of Palestinian background don't feel safe in Australia. I spoke at this time because I'm finally in the space that I can actually take this action. I'm not trying to build my career. My children are a little bit older. I'm secure in my employment and uh, health and safety. My father spent close to 50 years in this country after being ethnically cleansed from Palestine, never once feeling safe in his identity as an Australian-Palestinian. And he didn't feel safe, not because he wasn't confident in the fact that he was a Palestinian or had the uh, right as a Palestinian. He never felt safe as an Australian-Palestinian because our government echoed the Israeli narrative that Israel's right and Palestine's wrong. If you listen to our government, you come away thinking that the Palestinians were the oppressor and not the victims. And that was certainly the experience I had as a child growing up and as a young adult and as an employee in my very first job. But now, much time later, I have the security that allows me to embark on an activity like this without fear of loss of employment, without fear of retribution from society and a group of friends or associates that I need. So I'm free to be able to do that. Can you talk about some of your friends in the Palestinian community who don't feel safe to speak out? Absolutely. And that's the case for so many of them, Jan. And it goes to every level, whether it's as a parent raising a child, telling the kids to deny their Palestinian ancestry. Many of our Palestinian uh, Australians have told their children from, from when they first enter school, if anybody asks you where you're from, tell them you're from Lebanon, tell them you're from Jordan, don't say the P word. 
Um, and it's because our children have encountered everything in school from, you know, endeavouring to do projects. You know, every school, I know one of my kids had this experience, every school has a day where they go, you know, tell us where you're from, heritage, bring your grandma or grandparent along. Having a child come home and say, Dad, Mum, the teacher said I'm not allowed to do a project on Palestine because Palestine doesn't exist. I mean, this is indoctrinated and pushed into children in Australia by our education system, sometimes because the teacher might be a Zionist, but mostly it's informed by the language of our government. And our government, the Australian government, is in breach of its international obligation under international law, which refer to the fact that governments have a, a responsibility to continually progress human rights of all groups equally. Now, if you're a a Palestinian in Australia, we hear about our government, the Australian government, speak about the Uyghurs and Hong Kong Chinese and the Taiwanese, and, you know, we're up in arms now about Ukraine. But as soon as the mention of Palestine comes, Israel's got a right to defend itself. Israel's got a right to live within secure borders. Palestinians must renounce violence. There's never an equivalency in the language when spoken to about Palestine And that translates from the top through the media, through the education system, through to the employment sphere, where Palestinians are constantly challenged with the narrative that we are the oppressor rather than the victim. International law is clear. Israel is a belligerent, illegal, occupying power on the Palestinian people. It's very, very clear. I would imagine, NASA, that Australia is one of the the few countries that, practice what you've just spoken about, why? I don't, uh, I don't know that Australia is one of the few countries, Jan. I, I think certainly Australia, along with other settler colonial regimes, find so much in common with Israel. So I don't think it's safe being a Palestinian in the United States or New Zealand or Canada. Those countries share the same sort of founding as Australia, as Israel, where, you know, the settler colonialists came in and endeavoured to extinguish an indigenous population. Palestinians certainly feel safe in the third world, or the developing world, excuse me. We rarely feel safe in the West. Rarely feel safe in the West. Who's going to put this case for you? Birch Grove Legal Law Firm out of New South Wales is leading the case. They've created the brief. The, The initial application to the Australian Human Rights Commission, they had some questions as to whether or not there was a case and what, you know, novel approach you were taking with respect to Australian law. They came back to us and sought some uh, further clarifications. Um, we answered those questions and gave some more supporting evidence as to why Australia, the Australian government has, in fact, broken uh, international law and is in breach of my human rights as an Australian Palestinian. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful to the Australian Human Rights Commission. Uh, in the past week or so, they've given the green light for us to proceed. So our application and brief of evidence will get sent to the government now and they'll have to make a, uh, they'll have to respond to us. You're also bringing in the Australian government's reluctance, or worse than that, to agree to the case against Israel at the International Criminal Court. Well, in fact, that was one of the really uh, trigger points for me personally. Last year, following the massacre in May, whilst the world watched as Israel said Hamas had a office in a 19-storey building and therefore they should demolish the whole 19-storey building, the uh, Associated Press building that had been in Gaza for, for two or three decades. 
whilst the world watched on as that entire building was uh, blown up. We're still waiting for the evidence that it was a Hamas control centre or anything like that. Israel, you know, says we've got evidence and then just never produces it. Following that, the international community, um, uh, United Nations, etc., called for investigations. The Palestinians said, yes, we want investigations. Come and investigate us. The world said it's been crimes against humanity, and they said, right. The Palestinians, Hamas included, said, investigate the Palestinians, come investigate the Israelis, and whatever the international community and the international criminal court decides, we'll accept. We will accept that come and investigate the crimes against humanity by us, but also by the Israelis. Now, Israel is not a signatory to the international criminal court, so it could not make representations to the international criminal court. So what Israel did was reached out to its friends, inverted commas, Australia amongst them. Australia filed an amicus brief to the International Criminal Court saying that the International Criminal Court should not investigate uh, crimes against humanity in Palestine, not because there was no crimes against humanity, but because Australia didn't believe that Palestine was a state. So here was Australia interceding on behalf of a country that is not a signatory to the Rome Statute, where Palestine is, Australia interceded on behalf of Israel to block an international criminal court investigation of potential war crimes, not because there was no war crimes, but because Palestine wasn't a state. Now, if you want a clearer indication of how the Australian government is abrogating its responsibilities to me as an Australian citizen of Palestinian background, denying my rights, Um, my family's rights, me as an Australian Palestinian, the rights to an international criminal court investigation of human rights abuse, purely on the fact that you don't think we're a country, that we're a people. How greater an example of the denial of my humanity can you have from the Australian government? Surely, Nasser, this also speaks to the, the power and influence of the Israeli lobby in Australia. There's no question. The influence of the Israeli lobby is is great. But we shouldn't underestimate also the kindred spirit of the embedded structural racism that is Australia. I mean, the Palestinian lobby, we've got a lobby. It's not as well-funded, it's not as well-resourced, etc., 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 as the Israel lobby. But there's a very real connectivity between the settler colonialism crimes that exist within Israel and what exists here in the embedded racist structures on this colony. Australia is a kindred spirit of Israel. When Benjamin Netanyahu visited Australia, Malcolm Turnbull hugged and embraced him and said, Israel is like Australia. We've got the same beliefs. And he's right. We have the exact same beliefs. We kill, imprison, torture, deny rights to our indigenous peoples. Now, the Israel lobby is, is powerful and they are effective. But increasingly, increasingly, we saw this in the Melbourne Queer Film Festival earlier, uh, late last year, and with the massive success of the BDS campaign with respect to the Sydney Festival uh, through December and January of this year, that the Australian public is increasingly, increasingly becoming aware of the Zionist narrative and it's been exposed as a lie. The concept that this was a land without people for a people without land is a lie and they're getting caught out. The Australian public is increasingly understanding that the battle for Palestine is an indigenous people's struggle for self-determination 
in their ancestral home. And I'm heartened, I can tell you, as a kid growing up in this colony, what it was like in the Palestinian was tough. But my children are growing up in a far, far different environment. And the support we're getting from Australian public is completely at odds with where the Australian government is. And we're hopeful that my action here, the action that uh, Birchgrove Legal is undertaking uh, on my behalf, will continue the change of that narrative. Can you explain a little more about the Australian Human Rights Commission and that connection that you mentioned with the Australian government? It goes to the government. Where does that lead to then? Uh, so the first stage is look at reconciliation, where the Australian government lawyers will be saying, your rights haven't been breached. The Australian government's got a right to set foreign policy uh, as it deems fit for the benefit of the Australian public. Look, it'll, it'll be legal argy-bargy. I mean, I can't imagine that they're going <laughs> to be able to placate me. You know, certainly our expectations of that meeting and my complaint, what I'm... You know, what I want is an acknowledgement that they are not using honest language. I want them to start using honest language. I want them to talk about the fact that Israel is an occupying power, that it breaches international law, that aside from the fact that Palestinian NGOs and human rights groups have been saying, Israeli human rights groups like Gush, uh, Yeshdin, Bethlehem have said so, that American human rights organisations like Human Rights Watch and now British human rights organisation, Anthony Sin, Amnesty International has said so, that Israel is an apartheid regime and that it needs to be sanctioned. Now, until Australia starts adopting the language of international law and holds Israel to account and fulfills its obligations under international law to progress human rights of all ethnic groups equally in Australia, I won't be settling. We'll, we'll want our day in court. Will other witnesses be called? I'd, I'd expect so. At the moment, look, it's very early. This is, um, uh, and forgive me for not knowing exactly the answer, Jen, it's a very, very novel section of the law, this application of. There's been a huge amount of interest nationally from barristers as well as internationally. We're getting calls for offers of assistance from all over the world. I, I think watch this space, Jen, and I, I look forward to speaking to you many times in the future between now and, fingers crossed, when we walk down the steps of the High Court having a huge win. Also, NASA, the stance of the Australian government, how much influence do you believe that has on the Australian media? No question. There's no question. The Australian government creates the language that is permissible for society and the media is part of society to speak to. Now, we talked about the Israel lobby and its influence and the work it does with respect to uh, lobbying the government. They also do a significant work and significant lobbying of the media barons. Um, and sadly, because uh, the media landscape has become so so tight with so few owners, uh, there's sort of messages that are coming through to the public from mainstream media are becoming more and more linear, which is why it's so important for uh, places like 3CR to be open and thriving. Most people should subscribe and thank you for your show and all the work you've done along the, the journey, Jen. But when the government changes its language, that cannot but inform education policy, cannot but inform foreign policy, cannot but inform uh, the language that ends up being represented in our newspapers. I mean, if the government invades Ukraine, the newspapers would report that. Now, at the moment, we're carrying the American uh, line, and I don't agree that Russia should invade uh, Ukraine, but we're carrying the media line that you know Russia should have invaded two days ago, one day ago, today, they might be going in tomorrow. 
and everything that Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg and Moose Payne say is echoed by Channel 7, Channel 9, Herald Sun and The Age. And it's because they're all owned, you know, only by a couple of different corporations. If the Australian government was to start using international human rights law, international law, when they speak about Israel, we would have situations like what we've got in South Africa today. If you read the media in South Africa, the media in South Africa talks to apartheid, talks to uh, the breaches of international law, talks to Israel's non-compliance with so many UN resolutions. We need to get to that point in Australia too. Finally, Nasser, I'm just wondering how your complaint fits in with the announcement by the federal government to list the entirety of Hamas as a terrorist organisation. Let's be clear. I'm no supporter of Hamas. Hamas, though, is a resistance movement. It's a body that was created, seeded by the Israeli occupation forces as a counter to uh, Yasser Arafat and Fatah. Israel's occupation of Palestine is decades longer than Hamas's. Hamas adopted it, uh, changed its charter over a decade to accept a two-state solution, a solution I don't accept, but a solution that was one of the minimum requirements of Hamas to enter international community negotiations, etc. Hamas accepts a two-state solution. The overwhelming majority of Israel's Knesset, the parliament of the state of Israel, the uh, members of that Knesset that are elected by the constituency of Israel, the overwhelming majority of them don't accept that there'll ever be a Palestinian state west of the Jordan River. Now, Hamas is the de facto ruler of Gaza. They have the responsibility of day-to-day services, of, you know, administration, rubbish collection, you know, all the sort of go into a normal uh, maintenance of, of, a, of a state, even though it's the world's largest open-air jail. Israel controls entry, egress, birth registry, death registry, visas, the entire caboodle. Hamas, by being the de facto ruler of those 10 million people, anybody that's employed by that, the rubbish collector, is paid by Hamas. The school teachers, paid by Hamas. Electric worker who is doing repairs on the electricity grid, paid by Hamas. Every one of those people now is a terrorist. An Australian Palestinian who comes from Gaza, who sends 20 bucks to their cousin, if that person they sent the money to is a school teacher in a school run by Hamas. That Australian of Palestinian ancestry is now a supporter of terrorism. It is outrageous. And if this had happened before we made our complaint, we would have included this campaign, uh, this uh, part of our complaint. It is a blight on Australia that this has happened. They've criminally made everyone in Gaza now a terrorist, anyone that sends money or endeavours to help a, a, a Palestinian in Gaza is supporting and aiding terrorism. And with that, as you know, Jan, the full weight of Australian law can come down, grabbed in the middle of the night, not question, questioned for a couple of weeks without representation. All of the Orwellian scary things that have been introduced into our laws post the September 11 area can be thrown at you that when this went before Parliament, the representations that were made to that special committee were entirely, entirely that violence lobby we were talking about previously. There has been no absolute connection between the military wing of Hamas and the civil administrative 
authority of Hamas. There is no evidence or any link between the two. The fact that on uh, during the week, uh, during last week, that the Australian government decided to prescribe Hamas and a Nazi party in the same sentence speaks to this being electioneering, speaks to the fact that Palestinians in Australia are reduced to radical Islamists. Our humanity is denied, our right to justice is denied, the Australian government has failed in its responsibility under international law to speak honestly and to progress human rights of all people equally. It's an outrage and absolutely disgusting. Is there any confidence that the ALP could overturn this decision if they win the election in May? Oh, no, no confidence at all. I've no confidence in that at all. I'd like to think that they might or they would. At the moment, one of the things that's in the ALP agenda is the next time that the ALP is in government that they will recognise the state of Palestine in their first term. That certainly will be a first step win. Um, but we're a long way away. What we need is, you know, both parties. And I don't think that people who vote Liberal are necessarily uh, inhuman. I don't think they are. But I know that the leaders of the Liberal Party currently, and certainly for the past decade, uh, past few decades that I've been uh, politically and consciously aware, and as we know, Zionism is a settler colonialist racist ideology. You can't be a Zionist without accepting that Jews have a greater right to that land than people that have lived there for centuries. As a Palestinian, as an Australian Palestinian, I dream of a Palestine that my father grew up in. And that was a Palestine in the 20s, though uh, under British uh, rule at the time, post the Ottoman era, where Abraham, Ibrahim and Abraham played marbles together in the old city, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. And on Friday, Ibrahim went to mosque. On Saturday, Abraham went to temple. And on Sunday, Abraham went to church. On Monday, they played marbles together. They were Palestinian, Muslim, Christian or Jew, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter. No one, no one has a greater right to walk the streets of Jerusalem than my children. But my children's right is no greater than anybody else's, Chan. And the difference between my view on Palestine and a Zionist view on Palestine is that they think their right is greater than mine. And based on mighty's right, they deny my children's right and they deny mine. And that's unacceptable and it won't, won't uh, continue for much longer. Palestine will be decolonised, as this colony will be, and we will live freely there as we hope one day we will live freely here. Thank you, Nasser. Thanks, Jan. And you've been listening to Nasser Mashni talking about, amongst other things, his implication in a racial discrimination complaint against the Australian government for its advocacy on behalf of Israel. A Sydney law firm, Birch Grove Legal, is acting for NASA in a Section 9 Racial Discrimination Act complaint against the Australian Government. And just to remind people who haven't caught on to the fact that there is a Palestinian program here on 3CR, it's in English, for most of its time on air, 3CR has had a Palestinian program, not always in English, but now there is one, and NASA is part of that program. So I'd suggest that you have a listen on Saturday mornings between 9.30 and 10 for 
Palestine Remembered. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Transitions Film Festival returns this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about technological innovations and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 18th to March 13th, with screenings in Melbourne and online nationwide. For the full program, visit transitionsfilmfestival.com. Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. The fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes Kofiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white Kofiyas to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufias.org.au, that's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au, a 3CR supporter. Beginning in early August 2021, the Taliban began its takeover of Afghanistan, and by the middle of the month, were in the capital, Kabul. President Ghani had fled the country, and the Taliban were on the brink of taking political power. Today, six months later, by all accounts, the situation for the majority of the Afghan population is dire, and the role of sanctions imposed by the US and others is blamed for much of the misery and suffering. Millions post-starvation and a health system collapsing. You've heard Kathy Kelly on the program many times talking about her visits to Afghanistan, her work with young people, young activists, and their hopes for a future without war. Now all of this has ended, and Kathy and her friends are no longer to travel and support their friends in this way. I spoke with Kathy last week and began by asking her about President Biden's decision to refuse to release to the Afghan Central Bank $9.5 billion of its own foreign reserves. Now, truthfully, I don't know that we, we have a lot of clarity about that, but it seems that President Biden 
wanted to satisfy people who had a claim against the Taliban, and their claim had been resolved in their favor. They were U.S. citizens who lost family members on September 11th, and so they wanted to claim that money that the United States was holding, which is belongs to Afghanistan, to Afghan people, should be made available to them because of the Taliban now um, being the governing group in Afghanistan. It, it's still kind of complicated, isn't it? Because the United States hasn't recognized the Taliban as a government. But apparently $3.5 billion is being set aside to be useful for eventually settling these claims of people who lost loved ones on September 11th. Now, it should also be mentioned, I personally know several people who are part of a group called Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, and they've been active since October of 2001. They helped to form a walk that we did from Washington, D.C. to New York City, and they held banners saying, Our grief is not a cry for war. Two of them have been quoted in the New York Times, Barry and Ryan Amundsen, and they lost their brother uh, on September 11th. But they definitely did not want to say that um, Afghans, especially as they face starvation and financial collapse and possibly famine, should somehow be paying uh, settlements to U.S. families. So that's one part. I've read many times that the amount of money that the United States now controls, which was in the Afghan Central Bank or other Afghan reserves being held by the United States, is $9.4 billion. But there is $7 billion in the United States Federal Reserve, which is the Afghan Central Bank money. And so the what, what Biden did with the other 3.5 billion of that $7 billion is put it in an escrow account for eventual use in making contributions to humanitarian relief, which the United States could control and approve of. But I think the key word there is eventual, because the language also says that these payments of humanitarian relief wouldn't be made until the other legal matters presumably of the people who had said that uh, they won this judgment against the Taliban, until those matters are settled. Well, that kind of litigation can take a very, very long time. There are cases that are still moving through the courts that haven't even been resolved. And so that makes me very nervous. I mean, you've got a country right now in the middle of a harsh winter with drought and COVID, and statistics being put forth as estimates by the United Nations saying one million children could starve to death and 23 million people are experiencing severe food insecurity. That in itself is is very, very dangerous for all of those people. But also humanitarian relief isn't going to get Afghanistan's economy going again. They need all of the money that's in the United States Federal Reserve to be able to start their economy going again, to be able to pay teachers 
and healthcare workers and civil servants to give people income so that they can buy food. And if people can't buy food and other goods, then, for instance, the farmers. Afghanistan is an agricultural economy. The farmers can't afford to cultivate the land if they can't sell it to anybody, if they can't sell their crops to anybody. So the, the economy is in a free fall right now. And part of the reason that economy is so weak is because for 20 years, the United States poured in uh, billions of dollars, really, uh, but they didn't follow the money, and the money went repeatedly to very corrupt figures who quickly took the money out of the country. And there was no oversight in terms of actually building up capacities for infrastructure and health care and education. So, you know, it's already one of the poorest countries in the world. Kathy, has what President Biden's done with these assets set a precedent? Well, in a way, I mean, I look back to Iraq when a half million children died because of United States-led economic sanctions that caused it to be so difficult for children to get food. They were malnourished, and then if they contracted a respiratory disease or a gastrointestinal disease, I mean, they, they just didn't have the reserves or the immunities to fight those diseases. So hundreds of thousands of children died, if you just count the ones under age five. So I think there's already plenty of precedent for the United States to say to another country, if you don't subordinate yourselves to follow our national interests, we will kill your children. We've got plenty of precedent in terms of the United States wielding economic sanctions as, I believe, a form of warfare, economic warfare. And, and it can be more brutal and more bloody and more deadly than even the bombing that the United States has certainly done also in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So is this a precedent for the future? Well, I think it does augment and continue a United States foreign policy that is certainly based on threat and force and very little indication of an interest in collaboration, much less sharing resources or showing earnest humanitarian concern. What contacts do you have now with your young friends in the, the peace movement in Afghanistan, the peace volunteers? Can you still speak to them through the internet? Well, for their safety, they have disbanded and we don't um, use the name that they formerly used and they don't have the century that they formerly had. But um, I am, I would say a group of about, oh, I think we're growing. We're probably about 20 people now have tried very hard to stay in close touch with individuals and their families. And we've, we've worked out what we call a buddy system. So, you know, one person becomes the buddy to one person in Afghanistan. Um, so a friend of mine who's a retired math professor, for instance, is now the buddy to a youngster who just crossed over into Pakistan. And we discovered that there's a possible scholarship for a young refugee to go to the University of Barcelona. Well, you know, this young person is one out of 118 people. We're just kind of trying to 
be in touch with. So when there's a buddy, the retired professor in the United States has just gone um, like gangbusters, we sometimes say, full speed ahead to help this young man work on that application and try to make that happen. So I've seen that quite a few times. It's very encouraging to know that people can team up and uh, try to help some of our young friends get to safer havens. Right now, those who crossed over into Pakistan don't find themselves in a necessarily safer setting because they're always at risk of deportation back to Afghanistan. And uh, they're not allowed to work. They don't have papers, many of them. It's really quite difficult. But we are beginning to learn about countries that, that might be willing to welcome people, particularly we're very um, grateful and pleased that the um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Portugal is working quite closely with um, people who are sort of go-betweens, I guess. Um, A friend of ours who lives in Portugal has been handling the paperwork, but it looks like it's quite possible that eight people will go to southern Portugal where they'll be welcomed into a community that actually needs workers and particularly a permaculture community that would welcome some of them to help farm the land. So, good. And we're looking for scholarships, and one family of four is now in Canada. Uh, Four others are in Germany. But most of our young friends are uh, feeling, I don't know, maybe I could use the word marooned. Uh, What are they going to do? Their families are running out of bread. The price of bread has doubled. There's a lot of alarm, I can tell you, for People who, you know, they weren't above, like, working class status when I knew them, but uh, now there's there's real alarm about whether or not they can survive the winter with adequate sources for food and fuel. What's the journey to get to that border with Pakistan? Well, you know, there are flights now, but you have to have a visa, and it's never easy to get a visa. Some have uh, gone overland, and uh, there are quite a few checkpoints to go through. You know, it's commonplace, really, for Pakistani men and Afghan men, young single men, to cross back and forth across some of those border crossings for work purposes. And uh, so, so some of the young men have been able to cross that way. Um, Others have been uh, able to discern like a mountain footpath and follow that. That's pretty rugged. Actually, I only know one case where somebody's actually got the visa, but we're trying to help people get those visas now. What about young women? Oh, well, of course, women can't travel alone. So um, on a flight, it's more plausible, but... There are some young women who have crossed over with their partners, um, spouses. I I know quite a few young women who feel um, trapped in Kabul, and they're very anxious uh, that they they wouldn't be able to travel alone to go into Pakistan overland. You know, I guess the other thing I should say, we don't know if maybe – you know, other governments will start to recognize the Taliban. And maybe the Taliban will be seen as a legitimate government. And in that case, foreign countries might tell Afghans who 
fled for their lives, well, you know, you can go back home now. It's safe. You know, a lot, a many people from Afghanistan who had left Afghanistan earlier were sent back by European countries, for instance, because of that claim that you can go back now. There's no problem in your country. So it's, there's a lot of um, very complicated immigration law to look at and to consider. And, of course, for, for young people who have poor Internet access, and the girls especially have even more poor Internet access, and sometimes they don't really have um, the electrical access in their families, and they can't go to a library or go to a center. So it is more difficult, I think, for the girls, and sometimes the girls haven't had as much opportunity to learn and practice another language like English. We really are trying to be as much as we can, cognizant of equality between genders amongst these young friends. But I would say to some extent the deck is stacked against the young women right now. Are you able to send any funds through to the people that you're supporting? Not with ease. You know, the fact that the Afghan economy is so close to collapsing and that the banks haven't been able to get money has meant that even services like Western Union just have these wild oscillations. You know, one month they'll say nobody can pick up anything, and then uh, a week later they'll say, well, okay, but $200 is the limit. And then a week later you hear, well, you can send as much as you want, but only one money transfer per person per month. And in Pakistan, believe it or not, the rules are that if you – have a Western name, you don't have a Muslim-sounding name, you're not allowed to send money to somebody who is in Pakistan via Western Union. It's very, very complicated and I think quite difficult. And, of course, for major, large NGOs who that, you know, need to send big sums of money, you can imagine the challenges they face. Are NGOs actually in Afghanistan? The International Committee of the Red Cross is there, and the very wonderful emergency surgical centers for victims of war have maintained their hospitals and their first aid clinics in Kabul, Panjshir, Lashkada, and 41 more remote places throughout all of this. So I, I so admire that emergency surgical center. It's a group of Italians who started this network of hospitals, and They've done the same in Iraq, and they're trying to set up a hospital in Yemen. They're extremely courageous people. And I do admire the International Commission of the Red Cross as well. UN agencies are present, but, you know, especially in the winter months with the difficulties in road travel, you know, because of snows, it's quite difficult to distribute food adequately. And, you know, again, that's not going to be enough to salvage the economy. The person who heads up the International Commission of the Red Cross is a man named Dominic Stillhart. And he went into Afghanistan in uh, November of 2021. And when he came out, he said, I'm livid. He said, you know, I saw all of these, you know, bone, thin, frail children and this is blaming and punishing mothers and children who should never, ever be subjected to this misery. So he was quite strong in what he had to say 
and reported to the United Nations as well. And Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, has also been very strong in saying countries have got to lift these sanctions against Afghanistan. What other countries have the sanctions? Well, if they don't have sanctions themselves, they are very reluctant to be seen as in violation of United States rules and sanctions. And so um, they don't want to find that their other banking interests get affected because they've gotten on the bad side of the United States. So we see the same thing with Iran, you know, that um, because the United States is so strong in terms of world finances, countries don't want to interfere with what the United States is insisting on. So it's very bullying. When you think, Kathy, of the work that the the volunteers were doing a couple of years ago, making the duvets for the, the women and supporting all the people, now they have no support. Well, it is a, an irony in some ways, isn't it, that these young ones and their idealism wanted so much to share resources with other people. And I remember them kind of shaking their heads and asking me, how could your country ever have enacted those cruel policies, those economic policies that that made it so hard for Iraqi children to survive? And now they themselves are experiencing for their children, many of them are young parents now, for their children, their babies, their infants, they're not sure those children can survive. What is the information getting through to the people in the United States of the dire situation facing the people of Afghanistan? Do people know what's happening? Well, you know, I have to say that in comparison to the economic sanctions against Iraq, which were very, very seldom raised as an issue. It was almost impossible to push that issue into the news. We we violated those sanctions on purpose, committed civil disobedience, you know, risked 12 years in prison and a $1 million fine, trying to create a story that would draw attention to those sanctions. But you could not get anyone to comment. But I think there's something different going on now. And in some ways, I wonder if a younger generation of journalists and correspondents who've been in Afghanistan uh, during times of war aren't saying to their editors, uh, you can't tell us this isn't a story. Uh, You know, it's a bit tangential, I suppose, that when the August 26th attack, I'm sorry, August 29th attack killed 10 members of the family of Samarai Ahmadi, Samarai himself and his children and nephews, and the little girls that were in the household, three of them toddlers. That has not left the news entirely even yet. People are still raising that issue. And even on mainstream media, there were quite a few challenges to this presentation of President Biden as having done something sort of fair and you know, I think the White House wanted it to be seen as magnanimous. You know, we're going to get $3.5 billion in humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. But there was pushback, uh, you know, just saying, well, that's theft. That's larceny. That's a pretty low blow when people are starving to take what money is rightfully theirs and say it's frozen. What difficulty or ease do you have now to get your 
point of view across on the media? Well, I think we have to keep trying, but it is always difficult. You know, I think it's important to keep on organizing local activities. So there's something called February 14th to Afghanistan with love. February 14th is Valentine's Day, and um, people are going out with, you know, hearts and we love Afghanistan. But then they've got some very hard-hitting facts as well. And, you know, we've been sending out scripts for street theaters, and people have put out press releases and will contact their local media. And so I, I think that we really have to keep that kind of grassroots activism and coalition building going and then keep on trying to influence the media. But right now, Veterans for Peace and Peace Action, Pax Christi, USA, Code Pink, quite a few other organizations are uh, Women for Peace. They're, they're, they're organizing these kinds of demonstrations, and there are plenty of webinars that have gone on just even in the last four days. I was on three of them. And, of course, while the focus is on the children of Afghanistan, you can't forget the children of Yemen. No, and, of course, the tragedy of the United States continuing to arm Saudi Arabia and, uh, you know, give the Saudi political classes and militarists the confidence that, well, the United States isn't really going to try to prevent us from getting the upper hand. And now it's also extending to the United Arab Emirates. Uh, it seems to me it's just asking for a seventh year of warfare to persist and the killing will go on and also the danger of extreme hunger, starvation, inability to distribute food. It's a terrible, terrible situation. You know, between Afghanistan and Yemen, it seems that our accountability to a generation of children, in, in as much as we haven't been able to influence our government, and yet these children are being punished as though somehow they, these little toddlers, want to be controlling their government if they don't want to be punished. And it seems that that's the fate of those countries where the governments won't go along with the United States and you pay the price. I think that's true. I think the military contractors, meanwhile, are the big winners, the people that sell weapons and make uh, weapon planes and military materials. They never, ever have to worry about their profit lines dropping. $740 billion went into the defense budget for the United States. So that group does well. And then I, I think it's important to remember Yemen is not a poor country. They're resource-rich. And I think that's why the Saudis want to keep bludgeoning them. You know, Afghanistan is, of course, desperately poor, but I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't some speculators who think, well, you know, that country just might have rare earth minerals that are under their ground, and that could be valuable to us. And and then, of course, the United States has wanted to have geopolitical control over that region because, you know, when it had bases there, then they could exercise control over the neighboring countries. But now they talk about having over-the-horizon capacity, and they can base their drones and their attack aircraft in other countries nearby, and they say they can go back in and attack anybody in Afghanistan that they deem to be a high-value target or a supposed threat. Final words, Kathy. So touched by the eloquence 
of young Afghan friends who write to me and uh, say things like, thank you for hearing our Afghan pain, or can I share with you my heartache because we don't have anything to share with people who are burying their children who die of cold. Uh, you know, they're, they're in a very stark situation, but I don't hear them speaking with any kind of rage and anger. And, you know, I can't help but think about the insurrectionists on January 6th in the United States who burst into the Capitol building and were filled with rage and anger. And they weren't people who were suffering from hunger or displacement or fear of being bombed. And, and, and they had so much rage. So I hope we can continue to learn from our young Afghan friends whose desire to share resources has never ended. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jan. Patron U.S. peace activist, Kathy Kelly. Therese Virtue here from Music Sans Frontières. Subscribe to 3CR for music programs dominated by Australian artists, supporting Australian music making and lifting your day with glorious sound. 3CR is a membership-based organisation. We depend on our members' support. That's why we make it so easy to subscribe. Call 9419 8377 or go online to 3cr.org.au. Melbourne International Jazz Fest and Yarra City Arts present an evening of free live music in Burnley Park this Sunday from 6pm to 8pm featuring Afrobeat Powerhouse Public Opinion Afro Orchestra and Neo Soul Darling Rita Satch. End your week with good tunes, good vibes and a great time. To find out more, visit yarracity.vic.gov.au slash rediscover. Yarra City Arts is a 3CR supporter. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protests this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. It's been a while since we heard from Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network, on Tuesday home time, but he's back for his monthly segment looking at all things to do with the relentless push for genetic engineering. I spoke with Bob yesterday and the first topic was one 
we discussed at length late last year as the bill was soon to come before Parliament. Well, it did two weeks ago, so I asked him what was the vote on the mitochondrial law reform bill. Well, the mitochondrial law reform bill was debated for three days in the week before last, and uh, it, in the end it didn't pass the Senate. It is a contentious bill because of its uh, scientific, social and ethical uncertainties about the engineering of human, genetic engineering of human beings. And so um, there was a, a, all the, all the uh, senators were allowed to have a conscience vote on it and um, a number of important uh, amendments to the bill were proposed but unfortunately none of them were accepted and uh, the whole thing went on for three days on and off. And so um, there are just two more sitting days now, the 29th and 30th of March, before the election is called. So um, we're expecting that the government uh, to get the mitochondrial law reform bill passed to allow certain genetic engineering of human beings, firstly in experiments, but uh, later on in clinical use in the IVF industry. So it's very contentious. Um, some arguments were very good for um, amending the bill to make it more precautionary, to put in extra regulation, and to slow down the process of transitioning from the research phase uh, where experiments will be done to produce genetically engineered human beings to the, uh, who will pass their genes on to their um, children and grandchildren, of course, too. And that's, for us, the nub of the issue. This is about germline gene manipulations that can be inherited by future generations and we think that uh, it challenges the health status and also the human rights of those children yet to be born and, um, and of their uh, offspring as well. So it's been a robust debate so far. Greg Hunt, the health minister of course, is retiring at the election and I think he wants the mitochondrial bill uh, to be on his CV uh, when he looks for his next job. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, uh, sadly, I think um, the one group that voted um, all in favour of the bill and against any precautionary amendments to protect the human rights of the children who will be born uh, was the Greens. And uh, they really have been a major disappointment in this whole debate. I find it a bit amazing that the Prime Minister should be proposing this bill. Being a committed Christian, I would have thought that would be against their principles. Well, it's even a little bit different. You know, um, the Mitochondrial Foundation, or the Mito Foundation as they call themselves, is the um, front group for the interests that want to promote uh, these experiments and the clinical use of mitochondrial gene manipulation, they claim to prevent uh, mitochondrial disease. And the Mito Foundation has three patrons, one of whom is the Prime Minister. So the Prime Minister is deeply into this as well. Uh, yes, it is startling that given his uh, supposed religious commitments that he would support it at all, but secondly that he would also be a patron of the main proponent of the legislation is a bit startling. Uh, this technique is very risky. Um, what they propose to do is uh, get a, a, an egg 
donated from a healthy woman and to take the nucleus out of that egg and to put into the egg the nucleus from the egg suffering from mitochondrial disease. assumes that the nucleus that's going to be transferred doesn't carry any mutations for mitochondrial disease. And that assumption is very flawed indeed. Indeed, the nucleus is very, very involved in uh, regulating the activity of mitochondria, which exist in um, every cell and any egg that may be used uh, outside the nucleus. It's a particular kind of um, genetic material that produces the energy for our cells and our organs. And uh, unfortunately, things do sometimes go wrong. And as a result, um, we have a whole raft of something like 300 different identified diseases of the mitochondria. And this effort to um, so-called prevent mitochondrial disease is really um, premature and uh, it ignores what's been going on in the UK, which is the only other country in the world that allows it. Most countries around the world have laws against the manipulation of the human genome so that it can be inherited by future generations. They've been doing the experiments since. There are no results. And on the basis of this lack of evidence, both from animal research and from human research in the UK, the Australian government is proposing to allow these high-risk experiments, which are going to almost inevitably affect the health and certainly the human rights of the children who may be born from the experiments and their descendants as well. It's uh, really a threshold that shouldn't be crossed. Are we also looking at money talks in this? Well, that's hard to say. We've been looking uh, for the money trail um, as far as the IVF industry in particular is concerned. The Mito Foundation seems pretty cashed up. It um, puts itself forward as a charity. But uh, certainly there's money coming from somewhere. And the government, of course, has been shipping in as well. Uh, there'll be $50 million in the area. And in 2018-19 budget, uh, the Australian government allocated $500 million over 10 years to what they generally call genomic research, which will cover this um, mitochondrial research as well. Uh, with the human gene, genome editing tools, which are now available, CRISPR and other um, genetic manipulation tools that have been available now for around a decade since they were invented, the IVF industry and a lot of others, uh, scientists who are professionally engaged with doing the research and have been pushing very hard for the restraints to be removed. And indeed, there is now um, a global conference um, which is promoting human genome editing. Uh, you might recall that in 2019, in fact, at their second global meeting in Hong Kong, um, a Chinese researcher um, uh, announced that he had, in fact, created genetically engineered twins, and uh, that was received with uh, much horror by the global community. But indeed, there are a lot of other scientists who would like to have a go at it as well and would like um, some of the constraints removed. So we really feel that this mitochondrial bill 
is a Trojan horse for a much wider and much bigger agenda. And, uh, of course, uh, much of the IVF industry in Australia is foreign-owned. Uh, for instance, Sydney IVF is owned by um, Dr. Holdings, which is um, registered in the Cayman Islands and is traded on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And the main beneficial owner of that corporation appears to be um, a Chinese billionaire. So we need to ask some very serious questions who about, about who might ultimately benefit from the experiments and from the clinical use of these new techniques and technologies that are now being deployed. Because the pressure is building, the public is being um, systematically disinformed by the science, some in the scientific community, by governments and other interest groups. And uh, really, gene ethics is trying to um, raise, raise the flag, and uh, we're, we're engaging with other groups, other community groups around the world, uh, to try to sound the alarm on human uh, genome editing in particular. I'm not sure whether I missed you saying a moment ago, but is eugenics a word we're not allowed to use, or is that there in there somewhere as well? Well, I think there's a collective amnesia about eugenics and the fact that over the last two centuries, um, uh, the selective sterilisation of women, other rather nasty things have been practised, not only in Nazi Germany, which... Uh, took the lesson from the USA, Australia, New Zealand and Europe to um, put in place eugenic policy. Um, you know, there's a very, very dark and checkered history of um, discrimination against um, disabled people and I think that's one of the things that the Greens in supporting the Mito Bill have actually forgotten because their main spokesperson in this um, who vociferously um, supported the bill is... Um, Jordan Steele, John, their spokesperson on health, who has a major disability himself. And um, I think that they have just forgot, lost their way a little bit because they, their policies are the most um, developed and the most spelled out policies on human rights, uh, the rights of disabled people and other issues um, among the political parties in Australia. And yet this, uh, they are, um, I think, uncritically... Uh, supporting the mitochondrial bill, and uh, that's very, very unfortunate indeed, and it's certainly an issue that we'll be raising in the forthcoming elections, uh, that they've taken that stance. We have um, a cyber action as well that uh, people can sign up these issues from a uh, human health and um, a human rights perspective, and... Uh, what we saw in the voting in the Senate and in the Parliament earlier um, in December was that uh, there are people of conscience in all of the political parties, with the exception of the Greens, who, have, who seem to have um, consistently lined up behind uh, progressing this legislation. And as you pointed out, it's still a mystery why, but um, we need to be raising the issues. We've got uh, very, very... Um, significant problems with the, uh, for instance, with the conflicts of interest that the licensing committee of the National Medical Research Council will have. The chair is a promoter of human genome editing and yet uh, is chairing the committee that's going to hand out the licenses for these experiments 
and for the clinical use. And uh, we were trying to slow down the process to make sure that uh, any experimental evidence was um, thoroughly researched and uh, thoroughly credible before any clinical use was, um, was allowed within the IVF industry. And yet, uh, it looks more like a fast track as far as we can see. And other news just in this morning is that um, the former head of the Office of Gene Technology Regulator, who also at one point headed up the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority and a number of other uh, federal regulators, um, is now going to become the um, chairperson of uh, the Australian Biotechnology Council, which uh, promotes genetic engineering, particularly in, in agriculture. And I think uh, this points to a really serious problem that are now promoting genetic engineering uh, of plants, animals, microorganisms, and now human beings as well. And uh, this kind of uh, these kinds of conflicts come partly from the fact that there's a very small coterie of people actually um, engaged here. And in the Senate inquiry into the Moto Bill, the question of conflicts of interest was raised, uh, but was never really resolved. And the government has done nothing about it at all in the legislation. So I think that's a serious concern. Uh, they've sidelined the Office of Gene Technology in favour of the uh, appointed Committee of Lawyers and Ethicists within the NHMRC issuing the licences without any uh, independent review like that that the Office of Gene Technology Regulator might have provided. So the whole thing's a mess and we're hoping that the Senate will reject the bill when it comes up for debate on the 29th and 30th of March and in the meantime we're trying to mobilise as many people as possible to tell our senators vote no on the bill um, and particularly to support any amendments that are put forward to make it stronger than it is at the moment. Okay, well, that's not too far away, but at the moment you might think that egg white powder is coming from chickens. What's the true story of that one? Well, this is um, another... Um, a uh, whole area of um, genetic research that's um, coming up at the moment, so-called synthetic biology, which the government has been pouring significant amounts of money into as well. There's a project in Brisbane on um, synthetic biology, which is proposing a whole raft of uh, um, new organisms, materials for industry, new foodstuffs, new processes in food production, and uh, one of the most recent that's um, been out there talked about uh, uh, is uh, new egg white powder uh, protein, which is very extensively used in the uh, processed food industry. And uh, now there's um, a fungus which is genetically engineered uh, with the blueprint for the production of the ovalbumin, which is the main constituents See of, um, of of egg white, so we can shortly envision chicken eggs. The egg white powder that uh, is so extensively used in uh, ultra processed foods uh, will be actually made by uh, microorganisms in factories and then harvested. Um, I think it's important to say though that this is only the latest insult, and that 
already the um, Food Stands Australia New Zealand has uh, approved a whole raft of different proteins, uh, processing agents and products uh, for inclusion in processed foods that are produced in this way. Microorganisms are um, genetically engineered, uh, they're kept in vats um, and then the the products of uh, of these organisms are um, harvested, refined, and uh, go into the uh, processed food um, stream without much notice. They'll come in there under um, weird names or uh, numbers that hide the truth about their origins. Of course, genetically manipulated in any way because. Uh, as a refined food product, food standards has simply decided that uh, these need not be labelled. And similarly, food standards is currently um, considering whether or not the products of the new gene editing techniques, which I've just talked about in relation to human beings, if they're used in farm animals or um, in crop plants or indeed in uh, microorganisms used on farms, they are proposing that um, these should be deregulated so that unless they are completely novel, are different from any food that's already been in the food supply, um, then they won't require to be um, assessed or um, approved by food standards either. It will be up to the food industry to essentially self-regulate uh, the products of these new gene technology processes. And I think that's a disaster waiting to happen as well. Food Standards argues that, uh, of course, if anything is completely new, is not like any food that we've ever eaten before, uh, in, in this case it would be the egg white, then they would um, assess it under the novel food standard, not under the gene manipulation food standard, and uh, would evaluate whether or not it was safe to include in processed foods and for people to eat. So if we were talking about the egg white powder, uh, it's very likely that that would escape any um, serious um, evaluation by our food regulator uh, once the new standard is decided on. On that score, there will be another round of public consultation in April, we expect, uh, similar to that that was held last year. but. Everything's pointing to food standards deregulating most of the uh, foods produced using gene manipulation uh, technologies. Uh, it is the agenda of the current government and I imagine of any government uh, that is elected after the elections as well because, of course, um, the bureaucrats and officials and uh, so on who are in the public service uh, are the ones who often particularly in these specialist areas, really call the shots and the politicians go along with whatever they recommend. The state governments would be consulted, but most of their health departments, which are engaged in food regulation as well, have already signalled that they agree uh, to the changes I've just mentioned. So we're venturing into new territory, and uh, we would be counselling everybody to uh, look very, very carefully at any processed food product that they might be thinking of uh, buying in their supermarket. Well, Bob, what's a glowfish and why is that being genetically manipulated? 
Oh, glowfish were a bit of a novelty. Um, these have got a fluorescence gene put into them so that they glow in the dark and uh, very nice for aquaria and so on. But um, some researchers found them also living in streams in Brazil and uh, that becomes a rather serious concern when um, they're successfully surviving outside the aquarium and uh, in natural environmental systems and very possibly out-competing uh, fish and other aquatic um, in Brazil certainly but these things are being exported around the world and uh, uh, I'm sure that they'll start turning up elsewhere as well and having extensive environmental impacts potentially of course genetically manipulated fish have already been approved in Canada uh, and in Japan for aquaculture so we can expect that some of those fish will be, ex be escaping uh, sometime soon into the natural environment and competing in natural waterways, uh, streams and rivers and the open ocean uh, with the fish that already live there. So um, it's just another major assault on a global ecosystem as a result of um, you know what's supposed to be contained, what's supposed to be safe provided it's in a, an aquarium or a fish farm uh, becomes a potentially ecological havoc when it gets out into the environment. And there is no way, after all, of containing these organisms. Um, there's now talk of genetically engineering rats and mice on islands uh, with gene drives in order to control them. And, of course, uh, the escape of those organisms uh, into our national environment and potentially into the global environment are another cause for concern as well. So um, deregulation of uh, genetic manipulation technologies, like most technologies, is, is a thoroughly bad idea, and yet it's going on a pace around the world and particularly in Australia uh, and other so-called advanced countries. Finally, Bob, we've got the um, artificial select genes for special ad adaptation for ecological disaster. Instead of fixing things up, what are we going to do? We're going to get some more genetically engineered stuff in there and that'll fix the problem. Yes, this is a whiz-bang idea out of Melbourne University recently. In an article they were um, speculating... Uh, about the possibility of fixing the problems that humans have caused. Uh, you know, we're in the midst of the human-generated sixth extinction in the biodiversity destruction, global climate change, and all the rest of it is going on apace. And uh, these researchers reckon that up to 40% of the world's species are likely to be extinct by 2050. Well, that's... Um, that's probably an optimistic picture, actually. I think a lot of them will go extinct long before then. However, this bunch of bright sparks in the University of Melbourne are proposing that uh, they could use synthetic biology, which, uh, as I mentioned, CSIRO is pouring a lot of money to, into in Queensland to select genes that will help species to adapt to the ecological disasters that are happening around them. So... Uh, Rather than fixing the problem, we're going to fix the, um, 
the species out there in the environment, those fish, those uh, aquatic organisms, the birds and beasts of the land, come in, give them uh, new genetic makeup that will make them resistant to a disease or a kind of uh, impact like global climate change so that they can better adapt, these people suggest, uh, to the environmental changes around them. Because, of course, as the climate changes, as biodiversity is lost, what we see is that uh, species, while they're pretty adaptive, have simply been unable to adapt quickly enough uh, to, um, to maintain their communities. Uh, they're becoming endangered and then extinct. And that, those processes are simply out of control. And uh, I think it's extreme hubris to think as a, as a researcher and scientist that you can simply manage these problems by adapting or genetically engineering all of these species, and we're talking about millions of them, to, uh, to adapt to the situation, the sixth extinction that we ourselves have created. What about we seriously apply some thinking and some resources to stopping the pollution of the world with plastics, with um, toxic pollutants, with all the other garbage that we're pouring into the, into the world's ecosystems, thinking that we can genetically, engineered, genetically engineer everything from microorganisms, plants, animals, and now ourselves to be better adapted is just like, it's, it's incredible, it's unbelievable, and uh, just so wrong-headed that uh, it's hard to kind of uh, believe that anybody could really seriously be, be, be suggesting it. But here we've got a, a group of um, scientists saying, yes, yes, uh, we can do it. I just shake my head <laughs> and wonder what science and technology are on about because, of course, all new science and technologies bring as many disasters in their wake as they do benefits. And I think it's about time that we really thought about what has become a new religion, science that can do no wrong, and its um, products, the technologies which are supposed to bring us more comfort and benefits and advantages while ruining our nest. The world, the only world that we have, <laughs> is being ruined from beginning to end, and uh, we can't manage the destruction by managing, by more managerial measures, we've got to take some real action to change our lifestyles, to change our habits, to change our behaviours, to change our thinking um, in order to rescue the world, not to change the species that inhabit it. Well, it's just as well, Bob, that you and I have got our feet firmly on the ground and talk to you in a month's time. Thank you, Jan. Yes, it's always good to talk to you, and I'm sorry to bring along so much doom and gloom. As I said at the outset, the relentless push for genetic engineering and the equally determined group of people opposing it, and that's Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Join the National Sustainable Living Festival this February for a program showcasing cutting-edge solutions to the ecological and social challenges of our times. 
Be part of the Decade Zero and join the sustainability movement with a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. Let's bounce back with sustainability in 2022. Head to slf.org.au for the full details. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. Get your Radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. really accentuates and is very complementary to the white Australian domestic policy. Here you have not only a white alliance, but an Anglo-Saxon alliance of the ultimate cultural allies of the United States banding together and the significance that it is aimed at colored peoples, at Asian peoples, at Pacific peoples. This is injecting a horrible racial dimension to this conflict. So I think the U.S. and Australian elites' racist military policies are complementing the increasingly racist domestic policies. So I think, therefore, we really have to look out very, very carefully at this very dangerous synergy between racism on the military front and racism on the domestic front. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. hour travel time from Australia to West Papua. Not at a similar time distance than Melbourne to Brisbane. But for the depth of media coverage we receive, it could be a million miles away. And it would appear that our governments and media are happy to keep it that way, in the dark about the human rights abuses which happen there on a daily basis. But there are many activists who work to keep the aspirations for independence for West Papua alive, both West Papuans now living in Australia and local activists as well as those at home. One of the former is Ronnie Carini, whose life work is to inform Australians of the situation back home and to work with those both inside and outside West Papua in their struggles against 
Indonesian aggression. I spoke with Ronnie at the weekend and put it to him that one example of the repression in West Papua by Indonesia is the number of political prisoners, many being held and charged with treason and the often inhumane conditions of their confinement. Is it known how many political prisoners are actually in jails in West Papua as well as in Indonesia? Certainly, repression takes place across like different places and in different forms. And one of that certainly is the arbitrary arrest of peaceful activists around Papua, but also students, mostly the uh, outside of West Papua in the universities, in whether it's in Yogyakarta or whether it's in uh, Bali or other further Western and we see that repression whereby uh, many of the students peacefully expressing or raising concerns around the increasing military operation, um, also in terms of the special autonomy framework, the new one that has been um, already in place, and the dividing up of the province further from two to most likely five provinces, new provinces, and also in terms of um, the internally displaced Papuan refugees that since 2018 up to date, over 60,000 uh, Papuan refugees. And while this um, crackdown and arrest, we see that Indonesia is very sensitive when it comes to West Papua. And so we see one of the highest uh, profile figure, Victor Yemo, when he organized the anti-racism rally in 2019. And in May of last year, he was arrested. And since now, he's been in detained. And now he's been hospitalized. And I'm just going to mention a bit about this case, because that, that also gives a, a bit of the, a scenario of how activists in other places treated. So when Victor Yemo was detained last year, he was in isolation. And for the first three months, he was not allowed to be visited by lawyers, no families, no access to food or medical treatment. And that within the three months, and he, no even windows, it's all in a dark area, a room. And that really deteriorated his health condition. And so when he was able to get some access and a lot of pressure through student rally and um, appealing to the prosecutor and also the high, uh, the judges, they made a leeway for him to be able to have access to legal aid. And so since then, they have really pressure for him to be hospitalized. And so in the, towards the end of last year, he was admitted to the general hospital in Jayapura. And until now, today, like on Monday, he's going to go back to the court to continue his proceedings while in hospital. But the situation that he has to go through reflects how many other Papuan activists have been treated, whether it's in Sorong, uh, where it's the western end of the island, um, there's still some student activists there. They are in Manokwari. And also one died in the police custody last year in Merauke. 
and there is also a, a, a Poland guy, a Polish guy, came a few years ago and um, detained, and until now he's still in Jayapura prison. And the treatment is horrific. The way now that, like with Victor Yemo case, um, where it, anyone express um, consent, just anything on West Papua, that is something that Indonesia just didn't like or want. And we can also relate that here to Australia, the same amount of pressure that the Indonesian government puts to Australian government, particularly through the Lombok Treaty, where if anything on West Papua, now that we know the um, Senate estimates are happening in the parliament, and just to get West Papua through the, the Senate estimates is also very challenging. And so if the, the Australian parliament could try and block or filter anything not to do with West Papua, not to have West Papua mentioned in the parliament, imagine how Papuans and supporters and many even uh, Indonesian student activists facing from the state. And of course, most Australians wouldn't be aware that our taxes are going to train those forces in Indonesia against the people of West Papua. Oh, absolutely. And this is something that um, has to be a, a focus for many of the, like for our listeners, but also for wider Australians, that towards the end of last year in September, Australia and Indonesia have signed security, or not security, defence cooperation to strengthen the defence cooperation. And this time, Indonesian death squad on Australian soil in Darwin, which have already underway in early this year, early January. And so that shows that the taxpayers' money that the government is using um, to train Indonesian death squad. So this is very critically important that um, any campaign has to also focus on the militarization. And in terms of mil militarization, we know with AUKUS program that the U.S., Britain, and Australia would, in terms of nuclear power uh, station. But what Indonesia is also doing is buying some of the missiles from France, which was this year under Prabowo as the defense minister, and strengthen the defense cooperation with Australia for training of the, the security forces, and also by jet fighter from the U.S. So all of this, West Papua is going to be used as a testing ground for some of the rocket missiles, which was already used late last year. And now we are in the scenario where if Indonesia continues to buy a lot of this missile range and rocket, Secondly, the West Papua will be the place, and they will use their PR exercise to say that it is to crack down on the uh, national army, which under the Indonesian policies is they deem the, any West Papuan activists or the movement as terrorist organizations. So that to give them the legitimacy to create that narrative, the public uh, knowledge that they are cracking down on the the terrorist organizations in Papua. So that's where we're seeing with Australia, particularly taxpayers' money, knowing that it is going to train the Indonesian death squad. And that's through an academy in Jakarta. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And um, that academy, yeah, this is something that has to be really 
brought up in Senate estimates and in through the Australian Parliament to really go down to the nitty-gritty of it. How is that uh, funding and training um, translated into the, those soldiers not using those training to combat peaceful activists on the ground, but to go towards actually protecting the stability and protecting in the nation as a, as a state against the radical Islamic movement that creates terror and threats to the society. But what we are seeing, it's totally the opposite, particularly when it comes to West Papua. A lot of the training through that academy in Jakarta, they send a lot of the security forces, especially the PNR, into West Papua. And now that they are planning to build more of the military headquarters, which they've already announced in certain locations. That means that there's more deployment of um, troops going into West Papua in the next four months and leading up to the uh, national election in 2024. So that's already now under the current um, Minister of Defense, Prabowo, project is to have a massive uh, military power or defense power, and this also signals to the, to the region of his intention to go in back into the general election or presidential election coming up. And at the moment, he's one of the top three candidates that are in the contending uh, for the presidential election. Just remind people of his history, can you, Ronnie? Yeah, so Prabowo is one of the ex-military generals where his hands, there's blood on his hands with the um, the cases in Timor-Leste with the, the referendum process and there was a lot of violence and erupted from there. And so he, his case, like he did went through a, uh, like many of the countries, they put a sanction on him that he had to escape Indonesia, go to the Middle East to seek refuge there. But then after everything has not been heard, um, he came back as a hero and contended in the political space and made his way, established um, Gerindra Party, and now one of the most powerful and influential uh, member of parliament, which he even, um, in the last election, created instability in order to just maintain some power in the domestic affairs. And that's in 2019, we see leader, there was a lot of um, instability, and it's going, contender, uh, or the president elect at the time had to form a multi-party coalition government, which in a way, Jokowi has nothing much to pull in terms of decision-making process and all this, whereas Kabowo could get away with that through the multi-party government. And now we are seeing his building an, a military empire within Indonesia. And this is something that the history of how he engaged in the Timor-Leste case through that referendum, and as well as um, in West Papua. He also, there were some of the operations that he was right behind that in the 90s as well. And so now that he's kind of like one of the figures within the government as a minister of defense, this is look, you know, the outlook for Indonesia in the upcoming election is not going to be good if he is at the moment, 
a popular um, contender into the presidential election. Do any people compare what's happening in the top echelons to what was like under Suharto? Well, under Suharto, because he, he was a very much a dictator figure with that guided democracy. So there was that the expectation or the, the, the natural kind of feeling is that, yes, it's the militaristic approach to the whole of Indonesia, the archipelago. And so that helps in terms of the, the organizing, mobilizing, and the movement within with Papua at the time and other movements, even in Indonesia, were very much knowing that, okay, this is how we're going to uh, approach this. Whereas now, under Jokowi, uh, even as um, Susilo Bambang Yudhiyono, um, while the figure, the figure is, well, SPY, um, still an ex-military general, but Jokowi in particular is coming from a, a, not a military background, and so the, he's the face of what people call democracy in Indonesia through this uh, nom, uh, normal presidential election. However, the people around him the political advisors, the cabinet, is all ex-military generals, including Luhut Panjaitan, Wiranto, and these are people with pretty much blood on their hands on some of the horrific uh, human rights cases, whether it's in the molested case or in West Papua at the moment. And so it does show, show that many, like it really plays into disruption of organizing, mobilizing throughout Indonesia. And last year in October, um, they passed the, through this cabinet circle of the oligarchs and military elites. They passed on the law called omnibus law, which the rights of labor, workers, um, protection to the land rights, as well as workers' rights are all weakened. So it means it gives more power to the multinational companies, foreign investors to come in and carry out uh, uh, businesses. And these businesses are contracted by the ex-military generals. So with the case of Luhut Pandeitan, he's the Minister for Economy, as well as the Maritime Borders. And since he gets into the parliament in, in the last 10 years, he's now the most richest minister in Indonesia, and he also has has a lot of projects that is happening in West Papua, and that these cases against him of his mishandling of the foreign investment into the region, and there's a new gold mining that he's already going into uh, carry out that. It's called Wabu Block, but it's a, another block that is near to the Freeport McMoran, and there's been explorations already that there is tons of gold resources still sitting under there. But now at the moment, he's already gone in and signed contracts with foreign investors to, to come in, but the local people have been fighting again. So what is really actually happening in West Papua, in the Central Highlands, is the National Liberation Army and the Customary Council within West Papua are pushing back against this new gold mining to go ahead. And so in order for government to really legitimize that, they just have to create instability 
creating that there is civilians under threat. And so now we're seeing increasing deployment to those regions to secure uh, the the assets, the, the national interest or the foreign uh, investment interest in the region. So it really changed this um, dynamics within the movement as well, where the organizing and mobilizing under Suhato, it was really much clear to really mobilize that and make one more strategic in our approach. Whereas this time around, those ex-military generals within are sitting in the government, so they use the policies to really uh, weaken the movement itself and throughout Indonesia through passing of the new laws and then using the non-organic uh, intelligence, security, anyone that could be deployed into protecting state uh, investments, they, they're used, and they are mostly from the security forces. So it really, like with Victor Yemo's case, or he, when he was arrested, no one knew. This was an operation that was undercover. It's covert operation. And he was, yeah, caught right-handed without knowing that this, yeah, the security forces were looking out for him. And, yeah, they because he discommunicated through a phone that he shouldn't have, so they, they, they pick it up from that, and then he was, um, yeah, arrested. And this happens to many other Papuan activists as well on the ground. So in terms of accessing phone and with location, it's it's quite really dangerous for many of our uh, Papuan activists um, to organize and mobilize. And this including church leaders, um, customary leaders, these are civil society organizations and NGOs in West Papua couldn't really do a lot of advocacy work, even just to advocate for the internally displaced Papuan refugees. It's very difficult. All these new projects that are coming online from multinationals from outside of um, Indonesia or West Papua, who are the workers that are going to work in those enterprises? Are they transmigration from Indonesia or are they local people? Well, the interesting thing is um, with this project, one, it's not tendered or, you know, it's it's basically the, the security forces run their own project. So, they get the funding itself or the money coming in. And so when we look at the case of the Trans-Papua Highway, which is the na- a national program, and this national program, the funding was given straight to the forces. And so the security forces will employ people within the army because that's the only way they can make extra income. And so with the Trans-Papua Highway case in 2018, end of the 2018, when the National Liberation Army attacked um, the workers there, which it is debatable from the government side, they said that they were uh, construction workers, whereas the uh, locals say that they were, they've got security, like security batch number as Indonesian um, security forces working in this, um, that Trans-Papua Highway and cracking down on any stronghold of the movement. So that's why they have to put a stop to that. And so with these new projects that are coming, surely we, that one thing that we know, 
it's not the civilians that will be employed first, but it will be those um, security forces that are deployed into the region to monitor, to, keep, to fill in the roles within the upper ranks of executives and supervisors, and then they will slowly bring in people that they know will look after the interests of their foreign investments or this project. And so we are seeing even within the Papuan civilians and those who are within the public service to follow the instruction and basically do as they're told. So even the provincial government uh, cannot do any decision-making. It has to be through Jakarta um, to give the final call of any of the uh, projects to go ahead. So the provincial and central government um, are also not on the same wavelength in terms of decision-making. And then when it comes to the district and the local government or the community governance, have not no say. So it is really complex and complicated process. But what we're seeing is that increasing deployment of gives them more right to carry out those projects, and they are running it. And the employment, whether it's the Papuan civilians and trans-migrant civilians, that, that's second. That's second when if business are going ahead, but the first and foremost is to have the security forces um, personnel to run the project. Well, you've pointed out clearly that it's very difficult for anyone in West Papua to put their head up because it's likely to get chopped off by the, the military. But looking at what's happening outside of West Papua, the support movements, it's particularly the movements as well as inside West Papua who are calling for the UN to do something about or to come and see for themselves what is happening, the Human Rights Commissioner see what's really happening on the ground in West Papua. Yeah, and that is one of the biggest um, kind of like a push. Yeah, there has been growing support in the region throughout um, the intergovernmental bodies, particularly within the Pacific Island Forum, African Caribbean Pacific, and individual countries uh, who are member states of the United Nations have pressuring Indonesia now to, to open up the region, particularly just for an investigative or special envoy from the UN and should be led, led by the UN Human Rights Commissioner um, into the region to just look at the, upset the general situation on the ground and to see whether what Indonesia is telling the world that West Papua is um, a domestic issue and there is no human rights violation allow that because at the moment the civil society on the ground through the West Papua Council of Churches have repeatedly saying because not many of the like from the church um, observation not many of the people attending church in the last three four years and that's basically coming at the back of um, many people have fled from their uh, villages and they have quoted that 60,000 internally displaced Papuans in the central highlands of Papua around near the PNG border and then it goes all the way to Sorong, my area. 
and news of people, children die. And two days ago, there is a young man at the age of just early 20s died in of starvation in, because of displacement um, from the village. And so this is critically important. It is a humanitarian crisis happening in West Papua for the past four, four years, and we have not seen any intervention. There's nothing. Indonesia has not even admitted on the national scale, has not admitted the thousands of internally displaced people from their own villages. And it is very sad. And we can do as much as we can, but until there is that intervention, whether it's true World Council of Churches or whether it's true the civil society organizations to put pressure or to just pay a visit, West Papua really in that situation where it's isolated from the rest of the world of what is actually happening on the ground. And and that visit to UN High Commissioner, Human Rights High Commissioner, is critically important. And why it's critically important is this year alone, Indonesia is undergoing the universal periodic review at the end of the year in November. And so it is also a call for our listeners and uh, to try to the Australian government to put a case into the UN. And also you people can write to make submission to the UN Human Rights Council. There is a submission which will be end uh, by 31st of March to make submission and addressing the concerns around the human rights violence and the human rights situation in West Papua through the UN Human Rights Council. Then, given that since 2017 until now, Indonesia has agreed in principle of a UN visit, but has not implemented or finalized the timing of the visit. And now four years is up. And even though within the Pacific Island Forum, African Caribbean, and even European countries uh, have made the call for this visit, and Indonesia is just buying time. And so it is critically important this year for really pressuring Indonesia to make that happen. Are any human rights organisations allowed into West Papua? Sadly, not at this stage. Um, since 2019, when Red Cross and Amnesty and uh, even some of the environmental organisations got banned, very limited access into West Papua through uh, the, the CSOs and human rights. Um, on uh, passed on to the Human Rights Watch. They collected information, analyzed the data, and published uh, some of those um, um, horrific cases, as well as Amnesty Indonesia. And that's what they can do. Uh, even some of the reportings that they m- made uh, are used against that as well, against them as well, uh, with the Luhut Panjaitan carrying out these projects and uh, at the back of um, some of the uh, human rights abuse and land grabbing. He has gone out back and um, uh, taken with some human rights defenders and advocates, lawyers, um, into national court for defamation. <laughs> so it shows how much Indonesia... Uh, especially those in the government, have so much power that no one can critique them um, of their wrongdoing. And so getting away with whatever they want to do when it comes to West Papua. So it is is still an ongoing um, hope that there is more of the advocacy with 
with the West Papuan human rights and environmental defenders, because that helped if West Papuan could be, could be witnesses to tell their own story, then that capacity development for Papuans is, is what is needed on the ground to really be able to produce quality stories that could be published as news reporting or for human rights reporting, because if we hope that these international uh, human rights groups or organizations that could go in, it will be very difficult for or even foreign media to come in into West Papua. It will be far away from the reality. And so from where I see this yeah, important is the capacity development with and within the movement and with the, the, the people on the ground. So they, they will be better equipped to tell the stories. Thank you once again, Roni. All good. Thank you, Jan. West Papua activist, Roni Carini, now living in Australia. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.